You're turning your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We'll study together in our little continuing series in the Gospel of Mark. It's a joy for me to study God's Word and to proclaim it to you week after week in a verse-by-verse fashion as we study His Word together. It would be well for us to read these words of Mark chapter 1. We've entitled this little portion of Scripture, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 28, Steps to Spiritual Service. Let's read it together. You follow along as I read. Now, after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And he was going along by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and went away to follow him. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice, and came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding districts of Galilee. Now I've entitled this portion of Scripture except the spiritual service because I believe that contained within this very brief portion of Scripture is a, a model and an example, a key for all of us as Christians in order to be faithful to the Lord in our own ministry and in order to take the same kind of steps that Jesus and his disciples took even here for fruitful ministry. If you're one who likes outlines, I think we could outline it in this way. Verses 14 and 15 call us to the message in our spiritual service. The message in our spiritual service. Secondly, in verses 16 to 20, it speaks to us of the messenger the messenger himself in spiritual service. And then in verses 21 to 28, it speaks of the very method in spiritual service. 
the method of our spiritual service. The message, the messenger himself, and the method of our spiritual service to Jesus Christ. I think one other thing that jumped out at me while I was studying this portion of Scripture was the majesty of God, the greatness of God, the goodness of God. And I was reminded of the words of a preacher by the name of S.N. Lockwood that speaks of the greatness of God in a humorous way. He says this, Where did God come from? He came from nowhere. The reason God came from nowhere is that there was nowhere for him to come from. Coming from nowhere, he stood on nothing. The reason he had to stand on nothing is that there was nothing for him to stand. And standing on nothing, he reached out where there was nowhere to reach and caught something where there was nothing to catch and hung something on nothing and he told it to stay there. Now standing on nothing, he took the hammer of his own will, he struck the anvil of his omnipotence and sparks flew. He caught them on the tips of his fingers flung them out into space, and bedecked the heaven with stars, but no one said a word. The reason no one said anything is that there was nobody there to say anything. So God himself said, that is very good. God is great. God is marvelous. The Bible speaks often of how great God is. And when we compare ourselves with the greatness of God, the comparison is really no comparison at all. When we put ourselves in the position of knowing who God is, then we're humbled. We're humbled in any service that he allows us to have. For it is very much true that God did not have to do anything with regard to us, and yet not only did this great God of the universe create the world for us, and while he didn't have to, he saved us with an everlasting love. And while he didn't have to, maybe the most supreme thing to be thankful for is that not only did he save us, but he called us to spiritual service on his behalf. Even the Apostle Paul said, probably in wonder and amazement himself, he has called us to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. What, what a thought. That we, deserving nothing, meriting nothing in our lives, would receive the supreme privilege of ministering on behalf of our Lord. That really, I think, puts in perspective the kind of spiritual service that we need to have. And in this, <coughs> and in this portion of Scripture, it gives us an incredible insight into the kind of spiritual service we need to have. I want us to cover, if we can tonight, verses 14 to 20, and to speak first of all about the message and the messenger himself in our spiritual service. But in order for me to do that, I want to do a little bit of a background for you, especially those of you who might be here for the first time, to make sure that you understand the very context for what the Gospel of Mark is endeavoring to tell us in this first chapter and what we have thus far covered in our study. 
You know that first of all, in verse 1, it introduces us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, at least by a title. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then Mark goes on to tell us in verses 2 through 8 about the ministry and the life of a faithful servant, a spiritual servant of the Lord by the name of John the Baptist. And he sets the table for us in describing John the Baptist as the forerunner of Messiah, the one who was called by God to hearken the word of the Lord, to proclaim that Jesus Christ indeed was coming, and that the way ought to be prepared, and that the announcement that Jesus was coming was surely soon. In verses 9 to 11 of Mark 1, we move from the forerunner of Messiah to the actual coming of Jesus Christ upon the earth, at least in terms of a visibility that we should know him and begin to understand him. And that's contained for us in verses 9 to 11, where we studied in detail the baptism of Jesus. And then in verses 12 to 13, last time we spoke about the temptation of Christ. And we spoke about how God was confirming Christ in his ministry as the Son of God, who is impeccably able to withstand the full fury of satanic temptation. Now, when we go back to verses 2 through 8 in that little summary, and when we discover the ministry of John the Baptist, and I would encourage you, if you have not listened to that series of messages on verses 2 through 8, I encourage you to do that. We hearken back in Mark's Gospel in chapter 1, verse 14, to another statement about John. Notice in verse 14. It says, Now after John had been taken into custody. Now, I want you to understand what's going on here because this helps set the stage for what Mark is about to tell us in verses 14 to 28. Because in between verses 13 and verse 14, there's a gap. There's actually a gap of approximately six months, maybe even up to a year, between the temptation of Christ and Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. You don't see it there in Mark 1, but it is there when you compare the other synoptic Gospels. In fact, if you were to turn over to John chapter 1, you would begin to understand a little bit of the chronology that helps us understand verses 14 to 28 of Mark 1. In John chapter 1, it speaks also of the baptism of Jesus Christ. And in verse 29, it picks up the chronology that Mark doesn't give us. And it says this, The next day, that is, the next day after the baptism of Christ by John the Baptist, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming, here, coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. 
John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained on him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist goes on in the Apostle John's account in verse 35 to describe some of the very first converts of Jesus in his public ministry. And if you move all the way over to chapter 3 of John's Gospel, you'll begin to see that John the Baptist is about to fade from the scene. After his baptism of Jesus Christ, and after about a six months, maybe even up to a year's worth of parallel ministry between Jesus in one location, that is Judea, and John the Baptist there in Galilee, John the Baptist's ministry begins to decline. In other words, the chronology is this. John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. Jesus begins then to embark upon his public ministry. But Mark is silent on that detail. And approximately six months, maybe even up to a year goes by, where Jesus is ministering in another location. Mark doesn't tell us about it. John the Baptist, however, stays in Galilee and continues to preach. But it is clear that the more John the Baptist preaches, the more confusion there is about who he is and about who Jesus is. Because John the Baptist, while not having the same kind of power that Christ had, certainly had the same kind of preaching. And in his preaching, there were many who were saying, as you know, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you the expected one? In fact, as we'll see later on, even some of John the Baptist's own disciples are wondering, are you the expected one? Who is this, who is this Jesus that you talk about? Is he the one? And there seems to be a great deal of confusion about John the Baptist's ministry. And when John the Baptist begins to proclaim that he is not the one, that Jesus Christ himself is indeed the true Messiah, it is very clear that God's timetable, the curtain of the sovereignty of God, begins to close on John the Baptist's life. Notice John 3.22. After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Now that clearly sets in our mind that he was somewhere else. Now he's coming into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because there was much water there. Note that, you Presbyterians. And people were coming and were being baptized, for John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. In other words, the disciples were saying, what gives? 
Don't you have a, an incredibly influential, visible ministry yourself? Who is this, really? John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said I'm not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, that's a reference to John the Baptist himself, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And in that tremendous statement, he must increase, but I must decrease. <coughs> he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. Who's that a reference to? John the Baptist himself. He who comes from heaven is above all. That's Christ. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given us all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You know what John the Baptist is saying there? In essence, by saying that he must increase, but I must decrease, and the joy of mine is now very full, he's in essence saying, my ministry is over. My ministry is over. There is to be no more confusion. I and my ministry are finished. I've completed the course that God has given me to do, and now I must give way to Jesus himself, where there is no confusion. Notice chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, when the Lord knew, very important, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, Although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. Now, go back to Mark 1. Now you know what was going on in between verses 13 and 14. Now it makes sense, doesn't it, when verse 14 says, Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. Why did John the Baptist and his ministry, why was he taken into custody? Because his ministry was over. And in the providence of God, John the Baptist confronted the, the king of his time, Herod, and said it is unlawful for you to have your brother's wife. And he was imprisoned. And ultimately, as you know, he was beheaded. One final act before John was killed, and he may have even languished in that prison for over six months, one final act was left. And you know what that was. His disciples came to him in prison, and they asked him a question. They said, in essence, are you going to die? And if you die, whom shall we follow? 
And who is this Jesus Christ? And you know John the Baptist's response. Go ask him. And when they did, you know what Christ's response was. His response was, the lepers are cleansed, the lame walk, the blind have their sight restored, and the gospel is preached to them. Jesus knew that the only proper response to the miracle-working power of his own person was that God alone could do that work. And John the Baptist did not have that power. And clearly, John the Baptist was setting his disciples on a new course, and that new course was to follow Jesus himself and to become his disciples. The Puritan Thomas Watson says it this way, John the Baptist, hearing in prison of the fame of Christ, sends two of his disciples to him with this question, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? It was not that John the Baptist didn't know that Jesus Christ was the true Messiah, for he was confirmed in this both by the Spirit of God and by a sign from heaven. But John the Baptist hereby endeavored to correct the ignorance of his own disciples who had a greater respect for him than for Christ. That is exactly and precisely why John the Baptist said what he said. Let's give him credit. He knew who Jesus Christ was. The Spirit of God had descended upon Christ, and God had given him a personal revelation that this, in fact, was the Messiah. John the Baptist was telling his very own disciples, My time is finished. Follow him. Follow him. And I believe that as we move on, especially in verses 17 and following, you're going to see exactly what John wanted his disciples to do when we see the disciples of Jesus himself. Now, with that as a background, let's talk about the first outline point, and that is the message in our spiritual service. The message in our spiritual service. You, of course, know that the message of the gospel is not new. It's not new at all. In fact, it's an old message that goes all the way back to the Old Testament itself. But in the very real presence of Jesus Christ, it takes on a tremendously new meaning. Look at it with me. Now, after John had been taken into custody... Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is the message of the gospel? It is twofold. First, it is the message of God's sovereignty. That's really what is meant by the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. And then secondly, it is the message in response to that of faith and repentance. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's incredible. It is incredible because 
when we think of the very message of the gospel itself, it should humble us just as it did John the Baptist. It's a humbling message. Why? Because it speaks of God and not ourselves. It speaks of our sin, that we need to repent. It speaks of our lack of trust, that we may believe in the gospel. And it speaks of God's sovereignty, that the kingdom of God is at hand. That is truly the good news. That is the news of the gospel. It's incredible to me how many people don't really understand the message of the gospel, and yet in the beginning of Mark 1, here it is. He was preaching the gospel of God, the good news. And what was that good news? The good news was that God had a plan and a purpose. And that plan and purpose was preaching the gospel. We don't have any other message, do we? We don't have any other message. We only exist for the purpose in our spiritual service of preaching the gospel of God. The sovereign will of God has spoken. You have to notice, first of all, what Jesus says, or what, what it says about Jesus, that he came into Galilee preaching, preaching. A proclamation. It has already been stated that John the Baptist was preaching. He was a Caruso. He was a herald. And what was he heralding? He was heralding Messiah. And this is that Messiah. And yet the Messiah himself is also a preacher. You know, it seems to me that many who speak more about the miracles of Christ don't understand that the very first place of ministry in the ministry of Christ is preaching. Preaching. He came into Galilee not doing wonderful works initially, but preaching the gospel of God. That's what he was doing. Why? Because it is the good news of God. He was announcing God's good news, God's good tidings, God's will. And he was saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. The God of history, whose past election and redemption of Israel has provided the pledge of his activity for the future, and that future is now. That time is now fulfilled. By God's sovereign decision, at this point in time, all the other moments of promise and fulfillment in the past find their significance in this one awesome moment. Christ is here. Don't miss the significance of this statement. Jesus is on the scene. He's here. He is now in his public ministry in Galilee. He has passed all of the tests. He has done all that God has asked him to do in order to be confirmed, and he's now coming and preaching. And he's preaching the time is fulfilled. And I don't want you to miss this. Notice that that phrase is included in the gospel message. Notice it says, he was preaching the gospel of God and saying, 
The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Did you realize that that also is a part of the gospel? The gospel is not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, but it is also the gospel of God, the time of God's sovereignty being fulfilled, and the kingdom of God coming. In fact, in Isaiah 40, verse 10, it says, The sovereignty of your God will be revealed. And this is that very revelation right here. This is the very revelation of God. It is absolutely crucial to understand. I told you before in this series in Mark that after Malachi, there were 400 years of utter silence on the part of them. 400 years. Israel had no word from the Lord commonly called the intertestamental period, and before John the Baptist's ministry, there's 400 years of silence. Don't you know that the Jews themselves were crying out, were praying, were fasting, were beseeching the Lord for Messiah to come, true Jews, who loved God, who wanted the Messiah to come, and 400 years God was silent. And now God comes on the scene. John the Baptist is announcing him, and he is here. And this is his message. The time is fulfilled. In other words, not just 400 years, but all of the years prior to that, where the Jews look forward to the person of Messiah. Who is he? When is he coming? And when is he going to restore the kingdom? And the answer is now. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Don't you know that there would have been some Jews, even in that place, who would have embraced him at that very moment, being drawn by God? Sure, there must have been many of them who assumed that this is just another would-be Messiah, just another wannabe who's come along the path, uh, maybe he's like this John the Baptist fellow. And yet God, unmistakably, through the baptism and through the temptation of Christ, confirms that this indeed is the Messiah. And that's why John the Baptist can say, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And notice what is to be the response of that gospel. Repent and believe. Two sides of the same coin. Distinct, yet inseparable. Repentance. A turning from sin that we've committed against this sovereign God. This one who is now crashing through human history to bring us his sovereignty on display in the person of Christ. And believing. A personal entrustment. A personal reliance upon. And he says that I am proclaiming to you the good news that God has come. The time has fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent of your sins and believe in the good news. Someone said, the preparation for 
and inauguration of the work which the Father had given his Son to do is ended. The beginning has been accomplished. Having been introduced to Israel by the herald John the Baptist, Jesus, by means of the baptism which he himself requested, has reaffirmed his commitment to take sin upon himself. He has proven himself worthy, for in the wilderness he has triumphed over Satan. He has done it as his people's representative, the last Adam, succeeding where the first Adam failed. Now, nothing can prevent him from carrying forward God's foreordained task and that which he voluntarily assumes himself as the Son of God. It's an incredible thing to speak of the message of the gospel. You may have been so familiar with Christianity that the words that I'm speaking to you right now go right over you. Because the words repentance and the words believe, and the concept of the kingdom of God, and the idea that God's sovereign timetable has been fulfilled seems all too familiar to you. But don't let it be so. Understand that that should be the driving force of your life. The driving force of all of our lives is this very message. It is what we live for. It is what we breathe in. It is what we proclaim out of our mouths and live with our lives. And beloved, if you're going to take the very first step to spiritual service, it is to affirm and believe and proclaim and defend that very message. How many of you, practically speaking, share the gospel message regularly? How many of you are fearful of speaking a word about Christ? Fearful that you may be looked upon as bizarre, as strange, as holding on to a religion as a crutch. Looking at Christ as your Savior, but too embarrassed to give him as a Savior to others. It should not be so with those who name the name of Christ. It shouldn't be that way with me. I shouldn't be embarrassed about the gospel. I shouldn't be embarrassed about the message that God proclaims, and that is that the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Why? Why? Well, the very fact that if the time was fulfilled at the precise moment there, that means that God is still on a timetable, but that timetable will not run through eternity. It's going to end. It will end. And are we going to be ready when it ends and be proclaimed by God himself as a faithful messenger of that message? That I spoke the gospel, that I lived the gospel, that I loved the gospel, and that I proclaimed and defended that gospel against its most ardent attack. Is that what we live for? Is that what we desire? Or do we perfunctorily, mechanically, go through our lives day after day and week after week and month after month and year after year, not sharing the gospel message with someone else to give them the life 
giving message of the cross. This is, this is sobering for me. It should be sobering for you. This was so important to John the Baptist that he lost his head for the sake of the gospel. The early Christians lost their lives. But the reformers in the 16th century gave up their lives, many of them, for the regaining of the gospel message. Even in our own time in North America, as late as the 1960s, there were people under the deluge of Roman Catholicism who would dare enough to speak against Rome and preach the gospel message, and some of them were imprisoned. I've met them. You say in our own North American continent in the 60s? Yes. Some of these men were actually jailed for their speaking of the gospel and its obvious contrast to that of Rome. They lived the gospel. They loved the gospel. Do you love it? Do you spend your time thinking about the gospel? Do you work toward honing your skill in sharing the gospel? Do you think about what the gospel means not only for your life, but for the lives of others, that they are on their way to an eternal hell? and that they need desperately that message. And it could very well be that in the providence of God, you have been put in their sphere of influence so that you would be the very one to share that message with them. And that's not to say that you must lead them to Christ. Only Christ leads people to Christ. And yet, God has not only ordained the end, that is salvation, but he's also ordained the means to that end, and that is the gospel preaching. And that is preaching from you and from me. And this is what Mark is saying. Let's go to the messengers of the gospel. Point number two. You know what God is looking for in a messenger for him? Two things. Two things. He's looking for fishers of men, that is, evangelists, and he's looking for followers of Christ, that is, disciples. Can you see it there in verses 16, 17, and 18? As he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, Casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. You realize that what Jesus was doing was taking some of the things that these very men would know everything about and was going to present to them a tremendous object lesson. Let's study it together. First of all, it says, and he was going along by the Sea of Galilee. Now you know that the Sea of Galilee is also known as the Lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Tiberias. It's an inland lake, covered by land, obviously, and it is 12 and a half miles long and 7 and a half miles wide. And Jesus was walking along there, of Galilee, the lake of Gennesaret, 
And he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. Now, Simon, you know, of course, will later become Peter. Simon is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Simeon, a very common Jewish name, popularized, no doubt, by the famous Simon Maccabees. You know him from the intertestamental period, the Maccabees. And that was probably because of his popularity why Simon developed his name. And then it says Andrew. Andrew was an old Greek name from a customized Jewish family that they had of adopting Gentile names in their customs. And then it says in verse 16 that they were casting a net. Now, I'm sure you're wondering what significance could he possibly draw out of that? Well, the first significant thing to me is that this particular word in the Greek text for casting a net is amphibostron. And it is the only time that it is ever used in the New Testament. And that's significant. Let me tell you about this particular net. It was about 10 to 12 feet in diameter. And it almost looked like a tent because it had lead weight surrounding all of the side or the outside of the diameter of this net. And it had a rope on the top. And literally, a very skilled fisherman like Simon or Andrew's brother would cast that net off the side of the boat and it would spread itself out and because of the weight all around the diameter, it would fall immediately into the lake and all the way to the bottom and he would hold a rope in the middle so that he might be able to catch the top of that net and when it went all the way down, it would trap the fish underneath. And he, being a very skilled fisherman, would then take that rope and gather up all of the sides of the diameter of that net, and there would be many fish that would have been caught in that net. And you say, what is the significance of that? Well, first of all, it is significant for many, many reasons. Did you realize that there indeed were many, many Old Testament significances of this idea of a net. This wasn't just an illustration that Jesus was using as an object lesson. He was actually, even by the very use of Mark of this word, which never appears in the New Testament before, of a very, very significant Old Testament eschatology. And I want you to see it, because this opened up new vistas of thought for me. Turning your Bible to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 16. And this is, this is wonderful to study the Bible and to understand the significance of the words that are used in their proper context in order to understand exactly what Jesus is communicating to those he's later to ask to follow him. Jeremiah 16, verse 10. <clears throat> Now, when you tell this people all these words, they will say to you, For what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? And what is our iniquity, or what is our sin, which we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you are to say to them, It is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods, and served them, and bowed down to them. 
but me they have forsaken and not kept my law. You too have done evil, even more than your forefathers. For behold, you are each one walking according to the stubbornness of his own evil heart without listening to me. So I will hurl you out of this land into the land which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, and there you will serve other gods day and night, for I will grant you no favor. Now, in a New Testament context, that is the very kind of group that Jesus is talking to when he says, Repent and believe, for the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. That very kind of group. Evil, stubborn, wicked. If it weren't so, there would be no need to call them to repentance. This is the context. Notice verse 14. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from all the countries where he had banished them. For I will restore them to their own land which I gave to their fathers. And he did that, didn't he? He restored that land. And that is the very land for which Jesus is now standing in Mark 1. Behold, I am going to send for many fishermen. Aha! Something very significant. I am going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards, I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the crest of the rock. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. I will first doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable idols and with their abomination. Fishermen. This is precisely what Jesus is referring to. He's not just or primarily speaking to these men because they happen to be fishermen. He is speaking primarily because Jesus is the Old Testament fulfillment of this eschatological portion of God's Word. That Jesus is the one who will begin to train these very fishermen who will be fishing for men. Who will bring back to obedience those whom God will call to salvation. The same thing is spoken in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 29, verse 4. Ezekiel 29, verse 4. And this, again, gives a vivid portrayal of what Jesus is telling his own disciples. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your rivers cling to your scales, and I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers. Oh, boy. And fiddlestone. Can you see it there? The net. Jesus Christ will be like that one of old who is prophesied and he will take that net and he will have his disciples throw it out on the rivers. And as those weighted nets go down, it will literally cut men from hell. I will abandon you to the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers, you will fall on the green, on the open field. You will not be brought together or gathered. 
I have given you for food to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the sky. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord, because there have been only a staff made of reeds of the house of Israel. When they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their hands. When they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins quake. Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring you upon a sword, and I will cut off from you man and beast. The land of Egypt will become a desolation and waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Because you said the Nile is mine, and I have made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your rivers. He's telling them there is judgment, but there will also be salvation. And even Amos speaks of it. Amos chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, Behold, the days are coming upon you, when they will take you away with meat hooks, and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. Same kind of context of fishing and fishermen and Habakkuk 1. He says, The law is ignored, justice is never upheld, the wicked surround the righteous, justice comes out perverted. He says, Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder. Because I am doing something in your days, you would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I am rising up, raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings, and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. And you're saying, that's negative. That's unfortunate. That's ghastly. And the Jews of the day no doubt said the same thing. Habakkuk himself said, why, God, why? Why are you using this wicked Chaldean people to judge your children? Verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? In other words, why are you using this wicked people to devour your people? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their nets, and gather them together in their fishing nets. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. They offer a sacrifice to their nets and burn incense to their fishing nets, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without stirring? 
And can you imagine that the Jews in Jesus' day, because of these very clear Old Testament references, knew exactly what Jesus was referring to? Any God-fearing Jew would have known that the analogy that Yahweh used in the Old Testament of those wicked Israelites who would be taken away by the Chaldeans and the Egyptians in the fishing net of bondage would one day need to be recovered, restored. And that is precisely what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, Simon, Andrew, you casting a net in the sea. I know you're fishermen. But I'm saying to you, verse 17, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. You are literally going to be the fulfillment of those Old Testament passages. You are going to be the ones, the very ones that God chooses to be the fishers of men for my sake. Although the text doesn't say it, Simon and Andrew no doubt understood at least to some degree because they were God-fearing Jews. They had read their Old Testament. They knew what it said. They no doubt were asking about the analogy of fishing and nuts. And they, at least to some degree, understood that they were being called on a very, very special mission. They were called to be fishers of men. How do I know that? Verse 18. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. You really can't get the significance just from that phrase. But can you imagine the scene? These men who were fishermen all their lives. That's all they knew, folks. That's like someone walking into your office and saying, I have a new job for you, and you literally... Stop what you're doing and get up and go to a new vocation. Would that be tough for you? Would you say to yourself, how can it be? Would you wonder? Would you question? Would you say to yourself, this is all I know. This is all I've ever been trained in. How can I do what you've asked me to do? Wasn't it true that Jesus asked other would-be disciples to follow him, and some of them, instead of this response, said, first, let me go and bury my father, and then I'll come and follow you. Remember that? And others were following along, but it says in John 6, 66, when Jesus gave them the hard demand, they were not following him anymore. You see what are the real issues surrounding this passage? These men are going to be followers of Jesus Christ. They certainly don't understand all the implications of it, but they at least understand this immediately. They left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, were also in the boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servant and went away to follow him. What a response. What a response. Immediately, they left their father. 
Can you imagine the commitment? Leaving your family, leaving all that you trust, your resources, your job, your vocation, all that you know, all that you're familiar with, follow Christ. And to embark on a mission that you know very little about. Beloved, they are exercising, if not in full, at least in part, a repentance and a faith in the good news. They're the living illustration. These messengers are the living illustrations of the message. And I can't tell you how encouraging that is to me. You may have left a lot to follow Christ. Some of you may have said no to great financial gains. Some of you may have said yes to Christ and no to many things. Okay. You follow Christ. He'll make you become sisters of men. The message, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe in the gospel. The messengers, Simon and Andrew and James and John, they're distinct and yet in so many ways not unlike us. We've left. Some of you may have left family and friends. Some of you may be even extremely ostracized by your family. The gospel calls for that, at least for some, doesn't it? Some will have to leave father and mother and sisters and brothers for the sake of the gospel. And yet God will reward us by giving us the incredible privilege of teaching for men. Throwing that net out into the river of life and allowing the gospel net to pluck out of hell those who would be saved. What a privilege. What an honor. Let's try to go on. Lord, we thank you tonight for giving us very clear steps to the spiritual service. You give us so many opportunities to understand what it is you're doing. Thank you that through this picture of your own disciples, you're challenging us by way of application what it means to follow Christ. To leave that which is familiar and that which is all we know. Reminds me of Abraham. He went out not knowing, but he was faithful. Lord, we thank you for these encouraging men that we find in your word Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Elisha. Daniel, Nehemiah, Malachi, John the Baptist, Simon, Andrew, James, and John. We thank you for their illustration of faith and repentance. We know the disciples will go through much more in the intervening time before Jesus is ascended, and they will doubt. But that's encouraging to us as well because we don't. We thank you for the spiritual service that you've given us. We pray that we'd be faithful to 
proclaiming the true message and that we would be faithful messengers for your service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.